This is Let's Talk About from Style Canada. And let me tell you, we're talking. Let's face it, we talk a lot. We talk about things we love, hot topics, and anything in between. But what about the things we don't talk about? What about the things we want to know but don't know how to ask? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Let's expand our horizons. Let's talk about it. Hi, all, and welcome. This week, we're talking about leadership with Selena Caesar Chavan. Selena is an outspoken advocate for equality and inclusion, as well as a leadership consultant. She is a former member of parliament who served as a parliamentary secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. During her political career, Selena advocated for those suffering with mental illness, consequently being awarded with the Champion of Mental Health Parliamentarian Award in 2017. After a turbulent exit from the caucus in 2019, Selena was picked as one of the Chatelaine Magazine's Women of the Year, a truly incredible feat. Prior to entering the political arena, Selena was a successful entrepreneur, launching and growing an award-winning research management consulting firm with a particular focus on neurological conditions, winning many entrepreneurial and business-based awards along the way. Selena is furthering her education by pursuing a PhD focused on organizational leadership and evidently has a ton of knowledge in this area from her experience in business, politics, and education. Selena, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh my goodness, it is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. So I finished your book the other night, and the first thing that I did was text my best friend and tell her that she needed to read this book, and this woman was an absolute badass. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, we're going to get into, you know, the nuts and bolts of your story, but tell us a little bit about that story and, you know, what makes you kind of a perfect candidate to talk to us today about leadership. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. My my definition of leadership comes from Dr. Carolyn uh, Shields, who says that transformative leaders are leaders who use their values and principles as a foundation to take stands that may require moral courage, to live with tension or have awkward conversations, and to some degree engage in activism and advocacy. And you know, this book really tells a lot of my story of pain and shame and guilt and my successes and my joys. And so I realized that throughout this journey, becoming a transformative leader, my principles and values that are the foundation are anchored by that pain and hurt. So I'm unwavering when it comes to talking about or advocating for people. And I'm unwavering when it comes to my principles because they're anchored so deep by some of the stories that are in the book and for me to be able to express them and then advocate for other people so they don't have to go through that pain is critically important I think it's a it's a defining characteristic of mine when I think about leadership I mean you are beyond open and honest uh the book is called can you hear me now and you I mean, you're open and honest in the book, but you're open and honest in every interview that I've watched you in, which I think is very rare. The book has a lot in it. You have a very full story and you're not even probably halfway into that story right now. But can you take us through some of the themes in the book? So I would say, you know, the primary theme is is finding your voice. So using your voice, you'll see like at the beginning, I'm often silent about things, watching and observing and then, you know, telling lies throughout part of my life and then sort of hiding myself and then coming to this evolution of 
hey, you have this capacity, you have a tremendous responsibility to be able to use your voice for good. Why don't you use it? But it's also about finding that convergence of understanding where your authenticity lies, like how you you form the, the perfect union with your imperfect self. So use all of those, those things that make you you, your authentic self, in a way that allows you to advocate, allows you to use your voice. There, there's, so, there's so many things throughout this book. I don't even know where to start but there's the you know just the theme of the, of the unknowing I think like that great unknowing that you know I came to Canada with and it seemed to weave itself throughout the whole thing so it made me a little bit of fear a little bit of not understanding but how that helps you and it allows you to evolve and I think my one of my favorite elements of the book is where I talk about blossoming turning from that bud into a flower that you know blooms and coming into my own. And I think a lot of people spend their lifetime doing that. And mm-hmm. I was able to do that through the book. Yeah. I wanted to kind of ask about, you know, taking that open and honest approach. You, when you read the book, there was times when you struggled with that. And I think some of that had to do with, you know, what, what we term as gaslighting too. And, and it was so interesting to hear to hear like the story behind maybe a headline of what, what happened there. How did you overcome that? Because it seemed like you were, you were kind of struggling with, Oh, is this my mental health or is this the actual situation? Is that fair to say at times? Yes. Okay. That that is chapter 10 of the book, which I told my editor after it was published, I said, let's just tear out all of chapter 10. Let's go find all the books and tear out chapter 10. Because you have to understand when you're, you know, we come through a Me Too movement where we're talking about women not talking about, you know, being assaulted because they won't be believed. It's the same sort of idea when we're talking about racism or sexism or any kind of discrimination where it's not so blatant that you feel like, oh, it's reportable, but then you have to sort of build this evidence of, of situations that you can present as, oh no, this is what actually happened. So I spent most of chapter 10, which is probably most of year one in politics, kind of going, is it me? Am I, am I going crazy? Is this actually happening? And I was actually ashamed of that as someone who is, was about like 40 something at that point, I'm 46 now, so I can't remember how old I was then, but like 41, 42, and still questioning what I knew to be true, what I named as discrimination, as racism, and was still saying, no, 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 maybe it isn't, maybe it's me, maybe it's, I'm, it's not that bad, I'm okay, no, I'm not okay, this is killing me, I don't know, and it was so embarrassing for me to to actually articulate that, but I wanted to keep it in there because I wanted people to understand that my title as parliamentary secretary to a prime minister or a member of parliament didn't protect me from the discrimination, didn't protect me from the unknowing, didn't protect me from asking those questions and having my spiny senses tingling because I didn't quite know what I was feeling at the time or if it was real. And so I left it in the book and it was that was a challenge for me, though. It was a it was a real challenge to be someone who is an equity advocate and still not be able to see it when it was happening to me. Did you know that you can connect with a Canadian licensed doctor in a matter of minutes? It's true. Introducing Maple. Available in Canada from coast to coast, two million Canadians are already accessing this incredible healthcare platform. I chatted with my doctor from the comfort of my living room. 
Maple can even connect you to more than 15 kinds of specialists, including dermatologists, physiotherapists, dietitians, naturopaths, and more. With over 200,000 five-star reviews, it's time to check it out. Head to getmaple.ca backslash style for more information. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, it, you're right. And it, it's one of these things that I imagine I'm not in that scenario, but that you think that you're going to be an umbrella under all these things and protected from all these things. But obviously, as, as read in your book, that's not the case at all. But we noticed that your book was dedicated to your mom. And, and you know, Elise and I have talked about this before, you know, strong women make strong women. So tell us about your relationship with your mom and how this really fostered your ability to, you know, speak for yourself and use your voice and speak against all these things. So hopefully strong women make stronger women, right? Stronger (laughs) women. Okay. I like that. So I'm really different from my mother. So I dedicated the book to my mom and I said, she's the iron dedicated to my mother, Odessa Caesar, the iron that sharpened me. And it's not, so so my, my mother and I have this tension, a totally tension in our relationship from right from the jump. We, I've, I've actually told her at one point in my adult years that, you know, it's, it's okay that we don't get along. Let's just, let's just live with the fact that we don't get along and let's not pretend anymore that we're best friends. Right. <laughs> um, but she actually, I, I use a line in the book where I said, you know, right from birth, I feared her, but she feared for me and treated me the way that she knew the world eventually would. And it wasn't until I was writing about, you know, my last year in politics, 2019, that I realized how profound it is when you're raised by someone that is able to sharpen you, sharpen that blade so much that you think up until this point, she's actually beating you up. But she's not beating you up. She's actually sharpening you. She's readying you for the moment where you need to, as I said about transformative leadership, take that stand that requires moral courage. And in that last year, I recognized how much my mother impacted my life in a very positive way, in a way that allowed me to be able to um, be unapologetic, unafraid, unwavering in my taking those stands for women, taking those stands against misogyny, taking stands against someone who is a very powerful individual that you might, you know, just acquiesce to their their demands and say, oh, it's okay, you know, don't worry about it. And then and then you remember, uh uh uh, that's not who I am. That foundation has to be unwavering in all cases, and therefore, I'm not taking it today. And that is a direct reason. Blame my mom. <laughs> Blame my mom for who I am right now. <laughs> I, li- I like to say that to my mom too sometimes. She's like, so is it just all my fault? I was like, well, I mean, maybe. Like, Relax <laughs> like a duck. <laughs> well, you have two daughters and a son. Yeah. So, and how are you, you know, talk a little bit about how you're raising them. So in the same way, but not. So I always say like my mother was must have been disruptive, right? She came to Canada from Grenada. And I'm sure people in Grenada were like, oh, girl, why are you, why are you going to Canada? I mean, it's so cold. They don't have no mangoes. And like, you know, and she must have been disruptive in her own community. And But she tried to make a better life for her family and came here. 
I'm disruptive here because I'm trying to make here a better place for my children. But we do it in a different way. So I was very, they were very strict, very protective. I'm their only girl. They're, they're fearing for me in this big country that they came to. And so, you know, with my daughters now, I'm the total opposite. So I'm equally as, as not as strict, but as, you know, they, they respect who I am. But they've had passports since they were two months old. And my, I think my older daughter, 21, Desiree, she's been living on her own. She's finished her law degree at 21. She's lived on her own in the UK since she was 17. She's been traveling by herself since she's 13. My 16-year-old travels all over the world by herself. She was in uh, Australia at the beginning of the pandemic with her best friend. And <laughs> so the, I give them that foundation. So that foundational piece is very solid when it comes to education, when it comes to knowing who they are. But I'm a little bit more liberal in saying, look, you can't just keep them totally protected. And, you know, I, I always remember coming out of university and thinking, I have a degree, but I'm really naive. I don't know how the world works. And I didn't. That was the one thing that I wanted different for my daughters. I wanted them to know how the world works and have a degree and be and be smart in it mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So we're a little the same in terms of the foundational pieces, but a lot different in terms of just letting them go and live and mm -hmm. have fun. Mm -hmm. And it, what struck me too while reading the book was just how strong your relationship was with your husband or is with your husband and that true kind of partnership that yeah. seemed to be there. Yeah, yeah, Which, you know, it's interesting because I talk about our relationship in all of its forms, right? And my daughter read the book when it came, when it was published. And we always have dinner together as a family, always. And, but during COVID, now we have like these DCs, their dinner conversations. So we're calling Desiree, come up for dinner. She's like, oh, I'm reading the book. I'm like, well, you know how it ends. Just come up for dinner. <laughs> and then she comes up and she's like, oh, my God. Whew. And she's like, oh, you know, anxious. And she, I'm like, what's the problem? She's like, man, I hope Selena and that I'll make it. <laughs> turns out fine. You know, um, it, it's, it's interesting because that dinner conversation, that DC that night was, you know, so why are you guys still together? Right. And I talk about, you know, I talk in the book about how falling in love is the easy part. You fall fast and furious through this unknown distance of time and space. And then when we were supposed to brace each other for landing, we let each other go. And I said to my kids, you know, that doesn't mean that we don't like some people just let each other go. And it, it, the, the impact is so hard that they they stay apart. But for us, the impact was hard, but we were able to still find each other. And that's not good or bad, right or wrong. It just is for us. And that's that that's OK. But my uh, my husband and I have always been very good partners and parents. So if we look at it as a wheel, our partnership, our friendship, our, you know, parenting is good. And then that one little piece called marriage, it's like, it's <laughs> a little piece. I said, if you could live next door, we'd be the best, like that'll be the best for me. You know, if we could buy the house next door, I'd, I'd love that because um, it gets on my nerves so much, but we're really good at those other pieces. And then we work on like the piece that's going to break down is the marriage piece. And then we have to like patch the wheel and then, you know, fix it up and do that kind of stuff. But we are eternal life partners who just I think we love each other so much when it comes to 
protecting each other and making sure each other is good. Yeah. I really related to that part in the book because it, it just, it seemed exactly what I would want in a marriage. And I, and so I so like respected that. And it seemed like he was there for you at your, you know, your low points and just kind of seemed like you guys had just this connection of that. He understood what you needed and and I'm sure vice versa too. Right. Cause we're hearing our story. So anyway, I wanted to touch on that a little bit, but so your family immigrated to Canada you start a really successful business on your own. And then what, what prompted the move to politics? And you started optimistic in that move. So then what changed from that? (laughs) So, yeah, so the company was going on its 10 year anniversary. So I had the company from 2005 to 2015, 10 year anniversary at at about 2013. I was like, you know, what am I going to do for the company to really like go big? Do I want it to go international or do I just want to leave it and go into private? So I did an MBA, my executive MBA. And for the first time in my life, there was a political course in that program. And the professor was talking about political capital and how they could have people in politics could help you with your business problems. And at the time I was running a national epidemiology study here in Canada on neurological conditions and finding out that people had to move from province to province to have their medication covered, or they had to divorce from their spouse to get services covered because they were in a too high a, a tax bracket. And I thought, hmm, maybe politics could help with that problem. Why don't I check it out? And and that literally was the the thing that set it off. And so in February of 2014, became a member of the party. I'd always voted liberal, so I just became a member of the liberal party. And I thought, you know, I'll just go to a couple of conventions and, you know, have a couple of meetings and ask for policy changes around this. And then on March 8th, International Women's Day 2014, an email came in that said, do you know a woman who would want to run in the next federal election? I was just like, do I know her? (laughs) I am. (laughs) I think I might know someone. (laughs) Yeah. Do I know her? Oh my God. I may be trying to figure her out, but I do know her. (laughs) And so I, I said, sure. And I, I replied back and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to run. And the rest is history. I, I really went in with eyes wide open but naive eyes wide open, right? Because I was never interested in politics. I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that I wanted to be bold, transformative, bring my authentic self to the space and like really bring that equity, not just for people living with neurological conditions, but beyond that, right? And then that changed when I got in there, the the, the public side, like living publicly changed, but also the, the internal infrastructure of politics when you're a a black woman or a woman in that space was was very challenging for me and i was the only black female elected out of 338 members of parliament so there's like this additional layer of you know stress that you know i i, I couldn't i couldn't quite wrap my head around until I was almost halfway through my term. And then I just said, huh, I need to show up now. Mm-hmm. So I spent two years trying to, again, figure myself out in this space and then said, no, I can't hide anymore. I'm not going to hide that. I'm not afraid to be labeled. I'm going to be my authentic self. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you bring that up because I'm, I'm surprised with those numbers, but, but at the same time, I'm sadly not. But Whippy, I'm from Whippy. 
it's a very white place. And you mentioned this in your book. It's, it, I mean, it is growing slightly more diverse, but, but you know, it, it is known as being a very predominantly white town. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from someone in Whitby who lives in Whitby, who wrote a poem about living in Whitby and growing up in Whitby. It's called Race Card. It's by Deja Jeffrey. I don't know if you've ever encountered her. She's fantastic, but I'll, I'll read a little excerpt here. So even the white kids' parents are divorced by then anyway. So I guess this is why they were mad when every time I say it's because I'm black, they laugh and ask why it's about that. Why every time I play my race card, they say it's unfair that they would die to have my tan skin and my curly hair. As if this was a compliment, as if there are not brown bodies face down on white cement, their blood splattered on the ground like red confetti. And I wonder if a black body falls and no one is around to hear it. Does it make a sound? Do we still give them a hashtag and a Black Lives Matter campaign? It's it's part of a much larger poem, but I think this is kind of a sentiment that having having these conversations in this place kind of bring about so so what made you want to run in Whitby as as a black woman and did you find any any complexities while you were running I'm sure we know about your uh further in Ottawa complexities there uh with tokenism and and such but but why did it, why did you decide to, to run in here of all places? So it's interesting. The, the poem is a perfect segue to what people actually said to me when I was running. Okay. And, and this is internal, not anybody in Whitby, which was a okay. wonderful experience running here. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second. But people were saying to me within the party, oh, my God, like, why would you want to run here? She's like, she's the lamb to the slaughter. Like, that is exactly what's going to happen to her. She is going to get butchered. And nobody said that to me directly and until after I won. They were like, oh, my God, we thought you were going to be the lamb to the slaughter. I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, but, you know, running here was interesting. Uh, so being naive when you're when you're running in a space and being someone who has a very strong business background, who worked in neurological conditions. So it is predominantly white, male, older white male space anyway. So I'm used to navigating that world and I'm used to having these conversations where people are not expecting when I open my mouth that something intelligent is going to come out. Right. Uh, so. Coming to the to the doorsteps of people in Whitby, I knew that I couldn't I had to get conservatives to vote for me, not just liberals. And so remember, this town was Flaherty country. The former finance minister was working in some degree of politics here for a lot for 20 years before he died and then running against the mayor. So I knew I had a, an uphill battle, not just as a black woman, but running in a, in a town that was predominantly white, 72%, and then running it as a liberal in a conservative riding. So there was a number of different reasons why I'd be this lamb to the slaughter. And the interesting thing, Ali, when I, when I stepped on the doorsteps and talked to people face-to-face, I never once felt any kind of racial tension on the door. Not one time. Now, I'm glad to hear that. I was afraid to campaign in Brooklyn because <laughs> because there's other reasons. Like, <laughs> different stories about Brooklyn. 
but not one time. So that fear was like people telling me, oh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be this and it's going to be that. But once you get to the door and I show up as my authentic self and talk about my business background, talk about my research background, talk about the fact that I was going to be authentic and talk, talk about the fact that I was going to push back against the status quo. I wasn't going to be, you know, the go along to get along politician. I think people were like, bet. Let's see if she does this. <laughs> Let's see if she actually stays true to form. And it's it's interesting because because I had that experience at the door, I knew that I had to keep those promises to the people of Whitby. I knew I've never once said, you know, Justin Trudeau's my boss. The people of Whitby have always been my boss. And so my allegiance was to them and making sure I fulfill the promises that I made to them, even if that meant at the end of the day, I had to leave the party that I was a part of and, and citizen independent, but I was going to keep my promises to them for sure. Man, if we could have more politicians like that, Elias. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, I'll be transparent and saying, I don't really follow politics that much. I try to stay educated, maybe from like a headline perspective, but what blew my mind was hearing the backstories of what was happening. Do you want to share a little bit about what was going on behind the scenes? Yeah. So, you know, we were elected in 2015. The campaign was around open, transparent government, government done differently, bold, transformative, um, sunny ways, uh, add women, change politics, diversity is our strength. And I was just like, whoa, this is like, I could show up 100% Selena in this space. This is so good. We're going to like have equitable policies, et cetera, et cetera. And I found, you know, it's very interesting, but I could I could actually label each of the years that I was there. So in 2016, I tokenism was the, the, the theme for the year. I was the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. I was which is a tag team relationship. So you tag team with your minister and you're able to then attend meetings and events to get together or separate. So you cover more ground. Right. He's in the west. I'm in the east. He's in the north. I'm in the south. And we're just sort of like tag teaming all around. You know, the prime minister attended hundreds of international events that year. I attended three and they were only three that were black focused events. The first was to uh, to the, the White House for the state dinner in which I wasn't invited to the state dinner. I think maybe the only elected official there who wasn't invited to the state dinner. Um, I was only invited to meet Obama on the South Lawn and that was it. There was no other meetings that I had. Um, the second was to the opening of the National African American Museum in Washington. Um, again, no other meetings, just sit there. <laughs> and then the third was the inauguration of President Akufado in Ghana. And it was embarrassingly tokenistic when I looked back, you know, at the three events and just thought, wow, okay. So I resigned from that position. 2017, you know, um, you know, I talked to the prime minister about recognizing the international decade for people of African descent. And I found the more I started talking up about mental health and equity, the more I was excluded. I didn't realize how excluded I was in 2017 until 2018, when the prime minister announced that he was going to recognize the international decade for people of African descent. And the budget for the first time in history had investments into the black community. And I was like, I wasn't invited to a single meeting 
for a government that said that they value diversity and add women change politics. I was not invited to a single meeting in 2017 related to any of those investments, any of that recognition for Black communities as the only Black female elected out of 338 members of parliament. So 2017 was the year we call the year we call exclusion. And then 2018 was the gaslighting year where again talking up about equity and racism. Um, if I had done that in 2020, I would have been okay, but I was two years too early. So talking about it in 2018 was not avant-garde. You could only I, I was gaslit. And the part that was the most hurtful to me was that my own party didn't try to protect me, didn't try to help, didn't try to say, you know, what she's talking about is real. She lives in a constituency that is 70% white. You know, I was being labeled the most racist MP in Canada and they said nothing. They just stood silent and their silence actually makes them an accomplice to the gaslighting. And so uh, by 2019, I was, I was done. As we continue to celebrate strong women, we know that it can be tough to face the world when you are self-conscious about your skin. I personally had some sun damage to my back and brought this to Dr. Solomon, a dermatologist on Maple's attention. With Maple, you can start talking to a doctor about your symptoms in a matter of minutes. They are a healthcare platform for fast, convenient, 24-7 access to Canadian licensed doctors. Maple can link you to a dermatologist that is ready to help and discuss your skin with you even offering redirection to a different provider if necessary to offer a more in-depth diagnosis. The best part, no waiting game. Once you log on and enter your symptoms, you can see a dermatologist in as little as 24 hours and a GP and other specialists in less. Visit getmaple.ca backslash style for more information and try Maple now and feel good in your skin this summer. Mm-hmm. It It's... I thank you for laying that out for us because I think you kind of perfectly laid out those themes. And what struck me while reading the book was like, these were, these are textbook definitions of these things. And the fact that it was happening within our government. I mean, maybe I'm so naive, but you're on from the outsider. You're like, Oh, they're preaching all this inclusion and you know, this, that, and the other, but to have those, literal, like, you know, you rhyme off these statistics, you share the examples in the book. It just, it blows my mind and it shouldn't. It's pretty much perfect for a book, actually. Yeah, you know, sadly. It is, it's textbook. It's, and it wasn't so forcing myself to write this book because I have contractual obligations to write it now. Um, write, Write this book. It's even when I'm writing it going, really? Really? Well, really? You know, and it's, and it's, you know, when people say to me in interviews, you know, so how do you, how do you, how did you feel about being tokenized? It's like, no, 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 I didn't feel that. That is actually what happened. It's not a feeling that I have. This is, this is the, this is the evidence. Here's what, let the record show. And it, it was, it was, it's still hurtful to be quite honest, Ali, like very, very hurtful. I don't know what I did wrong. You know, I I spoke up about issues that were in line with the government principles, but nobody was talking, who's going to talk about discriminating against Black women and their hair? I, I don't think JT was going to do that. So 
you know, why can't I talk about those things? Why can't I bring up other issues that fall in line with a diverse feminist government? And it was just, it was, it was known that I was being removed from the inner circle. You mentioned like, this was obviously a couple of years ago. Do you think it would be different today or no? Um, <laughs> yeah, my face. I don't have a poker face. Eh? Uh, yeah, You're like, no. I, don't, I don't play poker. Uh, no, I, I think what the, the problem is, is that the performative nature of government or of this particular government or this particular leadership is that, you know, you, we're going to keep doing these little things that show that we're we're performing equity, but we're not actually being the bold, transformative government we can be. And that's the part that really annoys me because, I mean, when we talk about pay equity, for example, Elise, you know, White women aren't going to get pay equity for another 40 years. Black women, another 100 years. Indigenous women, another 200 years. It's it's almost as if when we're talking about performative allyship, it's like, yeah, we're going to give you equity, honey, but you just have to wait 40 years. It's You're going to get equity. Didn't I say I'm going to give you equity? I did. But, but you just have to wait. So what? You're going to get it, but not right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the part that, I, I was really frustrated with because remember, not only were we campaigning around those those words, that rhetoric, rhetoric around being open and transparent and bold, we also got had a majority government. So if we wanted to do things that were bold and transformative, that would have been the time to do it. And the frustration was is that we let that opportunity pass because of lack of what we're talking about here today, leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in in reading through kind of your accomplishments, I know you struggled with mental health, but it was also you were able to secure, if I if memory serves, quite a bit of funding for some mental health programming. Can you talk to us about why that is so important to you? And and you know, I'm sure why that sounds like continues to be important to you, and it's a topic you continue to talk on. Yeah. So mental health for me. So the brain, I love the brain. I spent 10 years working in brain research and research management. And so, you know, right at the beginning of our mandate, we were talking about a piece of piece of legislation, medical assistance and dying. And we paused on allowing people who have mental health challenges and mental illnesses to access that particular legislation. And, you know, I I remember getting up in caucus and talking to my colleagues about December and uh, sorry, January and February of 2016 or January where I had a classic nervous breakdown and I was in hospital for, or an outpatient for four days and saying to them that if I had the option um, they would have one less colleague, you know, in their in their midst because I would have chosen that option. It was so devastating. My mental state was so bad. And, you know, once I started talking up about it, it was really impactful for me because I started actually feeling better. You know, I just not holding on to that secret made me feel better. And the advocacy then became easier to do 
because it wasn't just from an anecdotal perspective. It was from a lived experience perspective where I could say, hey, Jane Philpott, who was the Minister of Health at the time, how much do we need to ensure that young people don't end up like me in a hospital at 40 something years old, you know, struggling? And she said, you know, we need three billion dollars to make, you know, we need five. I'm going to ask for three. I said, let's let's be bold. Let's ask for five. Let's make sure every young person has this access and getting up in caucus or and other places and just talking about the need for a mental health strategy for funding for ensuring that 25 young people 25 and younger are able to access mental health services was critically important for me and the fact that we got it was that that was monumental because when we think about teenage suicide or or young people dying one is one too many and I I continue to talk about it because especially now in a pandemic when we're talking about racial inequality, the the impact of mental illness on everyone is so profound. So you'll see on Twitter or, or on social media where I talk about, you know, being compliant with my medication because I want people to know that it's important and I want people to know that I struggle with compliance so they don't feel so shamed about saying, oh, well, I'm not being compliant and, you know, it's, it's just me. No, no, no. I struggle, too. I struggle with not sleeping well. I struggle with eating like a bag of chips instead of broccoli or something nutritious or drinking wine instead of water. So I want them to know my struggles because I want to normalize how we talk about mental illness and what that looks like on everybody's individual journey. It just didn't end when I left politics. I continue to struggle and and the conversation still needs to be had, but from a very authentic space, not just on a bell, let's talk day, but every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially, I mean, this, you, you touched on it, especially this year, right? I think we're all feeling the effects of it in some way, shape or form. So very appreciative of that work that, that you've done as Thank well. You. I guess our next, our next portion is that you kind of mentioned in your book a couple of times and, and in interviews too, and also in real time, we're seeing it, you know, your counterparts and black folks saying, you know, you've, you've earned this seat at this table. Like, why are you giving it up? Um, but you kind of have this sentiment of, you know, why are you staying at a table where you're not being served love? So what are your thoughts on this sentiment? And, and I, I get where they're coming from, but I get where you're coming from too. So how do you kind of deal with that criticism? I guess we could call it. Yeah, so Ali and Lilith, when you have a dinner party, right, you're the host, you put people that you really like and want to talk to closest to you. And then further and further down, you put people that you're like, oh, I have to invite that guy, but I don't really want to talk to them. So I'm going to put them further away. Right. right? You have people who are servers, you have people who are doing all the other stuff around this dinner party. What I found was, or what I thought was at the beginning, I was beside the host, right? Parliamentary Secretary, Prime Minister, I'm beside the host. The more I started talking up about mental health and then equity and then racism, the further and further I found I was away from the host, right? So when people say, well, you know, you're at the table, I want them to be very clear about what they're what they're visualizing. So I'm further and further removed from the host. And then at one point I thought, I'm not even at the table anymore. You know, you look around, I'm like, I'm sitting on the periphery. And then, and then another another point where I'm being gaslit. So at the periphery is like 2017. Then in 2018, I'm like, oh God, I'm no longer at the periphery. I'm on the menu. 
right? So why would I stay at that table if I'm not being served any kind of love? And then people say to me, well, you know, politics is a blood sport and those Armani suits, (laughs) it's not no blood sport. This is a place where we're supposed to be enacting legislation that is helping people. Where is the blood? Where is the caged octagon ring that we're fighting in? This is not what this is. And this is not what it should be. It should be a place where we have empathy and we care for people. It should be a place where we are using that platform to show 37 million people that we see them and we want to make sure that they're doing well. And so, you know, when I found out that I was on the menu, I just thought, (laughs) why would I say it? And Nina Nina Simone's song, You Gotta Learn, says that line. Why would you stay at the table when love is no longer being served? And so I knew it was time to go. But it's not just for people who are listening or, or watching. It's not just about a job or me being at a table. It's about any relationship, anything that you put your your resources, your time, your energy, your love into. I actually love that job, but like relationships, community service, volunteering, reading a book. If it's not giving you something back, why would you stay? And leaving is so hard to do. And when people say to me, oh, you know, you quit. No, no, no. I made a very intentional decision to leave. I didn't quit. I left because I knew it was no longer serving. I was giving a lot and getting nothing in return from from the people that should have been my family in there. And so it was a a difficult choice to make to leave, but it was one that I had to make to preserve some kind of peace for me. And and I'll, I'll just end with this, is that even when I left that table, It doesn't mean that my passion for advocacy, my transformative leadership left because the title is no longer there because I'm not a member of parliament or parliamentary secretary. That passion, that purpose stays, but it's unencumbered because I don't have to stay within the party lines. I could could say the stuff that's going to rattle the cages and push the status quo without all the rules. (laughs) Well, we we are so happy that you are. I have to say, listening to you speak, I completely understand how you were elected. I mean, just the way you think of politics and government and how how it should be operating honestly inspires me to get involved in some way. And, and oh, hopefully right, one day. Okay, good. Well, right. no, well, okay, I don't know yeah. about that quite yet. <laughs> but I guess, you know, hopefully we can get to that kind of mentality with politics and government at some point. And who knows, maybe, maybe you'll be leading that charge one day, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, not to push you in that direction or anything, but tell us what you've been, you've been up to some really exciting things as well. You've obviously just written this book. What's, is there anything you can tease of what's coming up next or what you've been working on? You know, Elise, it's interesting because in writing this book, so I'm a total type A personality. I like to go, go, go. I have lists of things that I, oh, I used to have lists of things that next, 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 I do this, next, I do that. What I actually started to do, especially during this pandemic, is to appreciate now. You know, I, I say in the book, there's no time, period, like the present. I love the present. I love being in the now. I love 
having these moments of clarity of just joy. And um, so my next, the next thing I do is appreciate the next now, right? Um, yeah. And it, I mean, it's not that I'm doing nothing. I'm, I'm writing a actual journal that goes with the, the book. Uh, so it's the how, the how does Selena get uh, to be an immigrant child to failing out of university to parliamentary secretary to a leader of a G7 country? What are some of the things that I learned that I wish somebody had told me 20 years ago that I could have been doing? Networking, getting rid of fear meditating, um, taking care of myself, building a brand for me. So I'm, I'm writing that curriculum to help other women, other individuals, I should say, get to that point where they're understanding how to leverage everything about them for themselves to tap into their maximum potential. And so that's that's one of the things that I'm working on. I might actually be switching my my study for my my thesis to actually studying empathy and understanding how empathy and, yeah empathy and connections actually leads to better leadership. Uh, that's that's what I love to to do. I I I think I left politics because I wanted to know what was wrong. And when people say, you know, is the system broken? No, the system isn't broken, but there's something missing. And I really believe that that empathy piece, that love piece is missing because we, we've we been brought up by these arbitrary rules that says, oh, you know, it's a blood sport and it's, you know, it's like, you know, you have to be tough. If you can't hack it, then you can't be in there. I I call BS on that. That's not true. And so I'm I'm I want to understand how empathy plays a role in that leadership and in the capacity to lead better. That's really interesting. We're gonna to have to have you back on for that. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love that. that. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to find a place. I I actually have a call maybe today or tomorrow um, to discuss how to do that in a way that not just looks at the quantitative qualitative assessment of empathy, but looking at brain scans, looking at how the brain operates when we're in an empathetic mode and what very interesting, very interesting. I forget talking to you that you have this whole other like kind of medical researcher (laughs) side. There's so many facets to what you do. Yeah. So that, that makes sense. That sounds, I mean, sounds very interesting. So where can we find you, Selena, on Instagram, social? Oh, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All 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 of my handles are the same. It's at I am Selena CC. So I A M C E L I N A C C. And on my, my website is uh, www.selenacc.ca. And uh, everything about me can be found there. Great. And the book, Can You Hear Me Now, is available at basically everywhere oh, from what we can book see. Bookstores, <laughs> bookstores everywhere. Uh, download the audio version, download the uh, the e-version. It's uh, It really is a book for everybody, which I've heard from people. It's not just me saying that. Everybody who reads it is like they see themselves in the book. It's 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 been wonderful seeing how this book has evolved 
and come into people's lives and therefore allowed me to, to be on a little bit of their journey, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you on social and at Style Canada as well. We really appreciate it, Selena. Thank you for tuning into this conversation. We will have a brand new one on a brand new topic every Monday. If you were intrigued by anything in our conversation, we encourage you to talk about it. Tell a friend, post on social media, take action in your very own way. Subscribe to get the newest episode at your fingertips as soon as it drops. Until next time, check out Style Canada, a disruptor in the media for its community of inquisitive style seekers. You can find us at style.ca or on social media. Just like this podcast, Style Canada is not just about style. It's about living a lifestyle that leaves people open to evolution and opportunity. This episode was hosted by Elise Gasparino, produced and edited by Alia Ballas. The music credit goes to Raspberry Music and was brought to you by Style Canada. Music